Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, happy Easter, everybody. So glad that you're here. Want to say good morning to all of you watching, listening online. Also want to say good morning to our North Site meeting in Port Perry. Let's say happy Easter to the North Site, to them. Happy Easter to all of you up there. Welcome to the last installment in our series called Smoke and Mirrors. And I just want to take a moment to welcome all of you this morning, to you who are long-term believers, followers in Jesus, you who have just crossed the line of faith in the last few weeks or months or maybe this year, and to you that are curious, to you that are skeptics, to you that are seeking, no matter where you are or who you are on your journey, you are welcome to this Easter gathering this morning. Now, this series has been a unique series for us, and the goal of this series has to begin to provide a space to think to begin a real conversation, not answer every single question, but at the core of our journey over the last few weeks, there has been a call for us to have a real intellectual, rigorous understanding of the Christian faith, and at the same time be open to encounter. Let me share what I've shared week in and week out. Faith by definition is not a blind leaping into the dark. Faith, as we would term it here, is informed trust. It is factual, it's historic, it's, it's repeatable in many ways, and at the same time, it is also encounter, it is relational. That's why we use the word trust, because that is a relationship-like word. Let me give you a very simple illustration as we get going today. It is one thing to know that marriage exists. It is another thing to go and interview people that have been buried. It is another thing to attend a ceremony where you observe someone walk down an aisle to actually commit themselves for the rest of their life to another human being. It is an entirely other thing for you yourself to walk down the aisle and commit yourself. And anyone who's married will know this. And it's an entirely different thing to live with someone after you get married. Amen to that, right? Now, here's what we want. This is the illustration. This is why I want to use this. See, you can intellectually know that marriage exists as an idea or institution. You can interview those that have it. It is a completely different thing, though, to move from informed or facts to the encounter itself, where it moves from an intellectual exercise to a personal reality. And that, at its heart, is the Christian faith. The Christian faith is a blending of genuine history and fact and personal encounter. Counter. And that shouldn't shock us at all this morning because there are always two avenues of knowledge when it comes to anything. There is fact and there is the experiential. At the center of our conversation, of course, this morning, this Easter, is Jesus in himself. And thinking on Jesus, a man named Paul, who used to be an enemy of Jesus, who became a follower of Jesus, writing to a church just like ours, 20-something years after the Jesus event, summarized the whole Christian faith like this. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, listen, let's face it. If there's no resurrection for Jesus, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. Everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. And not only that, but we would actually be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. And all the affidavits we've passed on to you, verifying that God has raised Christ, sheer fabrication, sheer lies, if there's no resurrection. If corpses cannot be raised, then Jesus wasn't, because he indeed was, and I'll add this, really, really dead. 
And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then all you're doing is wandering around in the dark, as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who have died in hoping in Jesus' resurrection. They're already in their graves. And if all we get out of Jesus is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot as Christians. But then he says this, but the truth is that Jesus has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. That's an amazing summary right there. See, for us as Christians, the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus is an all or nothing deal. It's a total sum game. You're either all in or you're all out. And like I've been saying week in and week out, as Christians, we unashamedly root ourselves in actual history and reject the idea that our movement is myth alone. We don't run from history. We're not scared from history. Why? Because we not only believe, we know that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus physically rose from the dead, and that is a genuine historic event. Now, for the last two weeks, we've been rigorously trying to walk through that claim. We looked at history, and we asked and began to answer questions like, well, what is the difference between the natural sciences and history? And is history accessible? What are the rules of accessing history? And using that criteria, could we go back and know if Jesus did exist? Could we find out if the Gospels could be trusted in any sense, any sense at all as historic documents? Were there other people actually outside of the Bible that verify what we find in the Bible about Jesus? Was there any reputable leader or historian or governmental official or philosopher that said, actually, yes, that stuff did happen? Not only that, we went one better. We asked the question, was there anyone who would validate all of this who were not Christians and not in the movement who said Jesus was around, he lived, he was killed on a cross, and he died? We also began to wrestle through some of the deepest experiences stories in the scriptures where Jesus's greatest enemies and critics, like his half-brother James who grew up with him, and Saul of Tarsus both then become the greatest followers he ever produced, and they only became followers not because of facts or an intellectual argument. They both claim that they physically encountered the physically resurrected Jesus. Then last week, we moved to a different conversation. We looked at all the ideas floating out there on the internet, like everyone believed in physical resurrection 2,000 years ago, so this is just an adaptation, or Jesus only appeared to die, but he didn't really die, or Jesus' body was stolen, or everyone went to the wrong tomb, Siri took them in the wrong direction. Uh, The appearances of Jesus was just a group hallucination because of drugs or grief, or it's all just a scandal and a lie. So we walked through all of that in two weeks. Dave, on Good Friday, walked through the validity of Jesus actually really, truly dying. But now on this Easter day, I want to take all of us together, no matter where we are, to one of the last greatest challenges to the whole Easter story. But if you read the gospel accounts, most of us as long-term believers or brand new Christians or seekers or skeptics with hands like this, never catch the scandal in the middle of the story. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to the book of Luke. We're going to look at the Lucan account this morning of the resurrection of Jesus, Luke 24. It reads like this, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. And they found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly... 
Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Now, we read that as Christians and we celebrate, but we miss the scandal of what just took place because we're living in 2016 in North America. I almost actually wanted to call my message this morning, How Never to Build a Lie. Because did you catch it? Beyond all we've worked through over the last two weeks, this actually is most significant and most important. Now, this will be hard for some of you to accept this morning or swallow, but in this time, both in Jewish culture and in Greco-Roman culture, you would never, ever, ever use a woman in that culture to be a first-hand witness to something that you were going to fabricate. If you chose to use women, it would kill the story before it ever got off the ground. Let me just take a moment to take you into history. Let me read to you this morning some of the greatest Jewish accounts of this, Roman accounts, and even a Jewish historian living at the same time as Paul and John. We start our journey today in the Talmud, which is the famous rabbinical compilation of Jewish thinking. Here's what one wrote. The world cannot exist without males and without females. Happy whose children are males, but woe to him whose children are females. Wow, great start. Okay, wow. A guy named Josephus, who we talked about two weeks ago, who actually validated the presence of Jesus, speaking about the legal standing of women in religious and non-religious courts, wrote, but let not the testimony of a woman be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let slaves be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak the truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. A woman and a slave are equal in this generation's mind, and they are untrustworthy because of their position and or because they're out of control as a woman. In other words, they are untrustworthy and never to be respected in a legal sense at all. It's interesting, later, if you keep reading part of the Talmud, another wrote, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to be offered. Also, they are not valid to offer. In other words, they just can't even speak. And this is equivalent to saying that the one who's rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. In other words, a robber's word and a woman's word hold the same weight. One has committed a crime, but one's gender condemns her in authority. Now, if you read Roman scholars and Roman historians of the time, there were more rights for women in Rome than there was in Jerusalem, but they also were regularly considered second or third class citizens. And you can read stories about like Caesar Augustus would even in gladiatorial events push them to the back and give them no access because of their sex. Here's why I'm bringing this up this morning. How not to build a lie in Jewish and Roman culture would be this using women as the linchpin to your whole story. Women were both legally and publicly and religiously considered untrustworthy, no better than a robber or a slave in testimony, second or third class at best. And so if this gospel, if the good news of Jesus is a sheer fabrication, and remember, whether you think the gospels were written 20 or 30 years after the Jesus event, or you buy into the idea, side note, it's wrong, 
but buy into the idea the Gospels were written a hundred plus years later. They're still written in the same context. And this says that the women are the linchpin to the whole story. And yet why, if this is a fabrication, would these brilliant liars begin to use people that no one would listen to? And like I shared last week, it's not just that women are at the center of the story. Like we learned last week, in Greek and Roman culture, in pagan religious thinking, no one was expecting resurrection, no one believed in resurrection, many of them hated the idea because they thought actually death was liberation and this physical stuff needed to be abandoned. And we found out true that the Jews did believe in physical resurrection, but they unanimously agreed it would happen at the end of time to all people all at once, and yet Christians start proclaiming only one person has risen from the dead. With the women at the center and also to the sides, both the religious understandings all around. That is why N.T. Wright, that brilliant historian and theologian, said these words, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Many believed the dead were non-existent, and outside of the Jewish faith, no one believed in resurrection. That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. See, do you see it on this Easter morning? Do you see it for the first time? The central claim of the Christian faith, that is Jesus Christ living and dying and physically rising from the dead, which is crazy in itself, is affirmed and is witnessed from the most unworthy and untrustworthy witnesses in that day. And yet, if you read it today... The women form the account in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and 1 Corinthians 15. See, if this was a fabrication, the authors would have used people of prominence, like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, both Jewish leaders of great respect, or maybe Peter or John, but anyone but women. But as we begin to see week in and week out, and we will see today, women are the core of the original testimony in the original community of believers. It never would have been used in that culture, but it was used because it actually did happen. It was William Wan, that famous Oxford University church historian, who after years of thinking on history and church history, said these words, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it must recognize they are doing so on some other ground other than scientific history. See, the birth and the life and the death and the physical resurrection of Jesus happened All that we have studied is logically consistent, it is empirically adequate, it it is experientially relevant, and it gives every single human being absolute clarity on origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. It forms the most cohesive worldview you can find anywhere in the world. So now, with that, on this Easter day, Let us together come to the scriptures open and ready to either for the first time or all over again hear the good news about Jesus' life and death and physical resurrection. The women, the very first skeptics, they went to the tomb never expecting to see Jesus on this side of the resurrection. They went with spices to wrap his body. They are the first skeptics, not just doubters, and they actually now convinced run back and begin to share the good news story. And it picks up in Luke 24.9. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. 
It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Now you've got the background. Are you shocked? Because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had just happened. Now Peter wonders. He's not doubting, he's got great skepticism, and he's deeply confused. Everything that is in front of him in this moment is violating all Jewish theology. The women coming back doesn't help him because of the role of women and his view of women. And the claim of personal resurrection seems far too much to be true, and yet, in the very back of his mind, he still is wondering. The others, well, there's no wondering for them at all, as we see in the account. The start to their Easter morning begins not with doubt... It is ruled by jadedness, anger, and outright unbelief. Nonsense is not a neutral world. Can, word, can you hear the conversation? These women burst into this room, all these men who followed Jesus, depressed, wondering if they themselves will be executed for following him. And they run in and they say that Jesus is physically risen and we just hung out with two angels. Pause. Silence. Then response. Why don't you just shut up? Like, just shut up, you crazy, crazy women. You saw an angel. Yeah, sure you did. Why don't you just take your grief somewhere else? This is painful for us already. You're a woman, and I don't trust you. And what you're saying goes against everything we've been taught as good Orthodox Jews our whole lives. So let's just all agree on this right now. Let's admit it. Jesus was amazing. Yes, and unique, and powerful, and extraordinary, but when he got executed, that's it. Resurrection happens at the end of time, and look around, ladies. The Romans are still in power, and I'm still in sin, and people are still dying all around the world, and brokenness still touches my soul, and the grand Messiah thing is done, so just shut up. See, the reality of Easter doesn't start with joy. It starts with rejection, in pain. But it is not stopped by their unbelief. See, if you keep reading Luke 24, God is on the move. Jesus is alive. It says, first of all, that Jesus goes and personally appears to Peter. And he has a conversation with Peter. And Peter moves from wondering to fact, to encounter, to faith, to expectation, to unexpected joy. And then just after he meets with Peter, two men who used to follow Jesus are walking on a road called Emmaus. And as they're walking, suddenly Jesus walks up beside them. Hey, how you doing? Good. Who are you? I don't know. They walk for a bit. They have conversations about Jesus. Suddenly they sit with Jesus. They go to dinner for Jesus. Jesus eats in front of them. And then with God's help, they realize it is Jesus himself. And so these two men now run back to the same location that the women have run back to. And this is what they say. It is true. Jesus has risen and has also now appeared to Peter. The Lord is risen indeed. Can you feel it in the room? More and more witnesses, men, women, different backgrounds, really? Really? I mean, Jesus was dead, like dead, 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 and now you're saying he's alive? See, the post-resurrection stories of Luke's gospel give us great and needed insight into the struggle for faith for the very first Christians and for many of us sitting and watching online today. Thinking on the real and honest struggle, one person wrote this, The original people found it hard to believe. Why? Because they were afraid. And they were disheartened. And they mistrusted the witnesses. 
and because they needed to see for themselves. Is that you, afraid, disheartened, mistrusting, needed to see? And when they actually did see, as we'll see in a minute, they still found it hard to believe. We have to take struggle seriously as Christians. The journey of faith is just that for nearly all of us, a whole series of small steps and small encounters. Even if there's a great turning point or an overwhelming moment, these are still embedded in a journey that is far from over. Isn't it surprising that Thomas has now become the most attractive role model in recent years, and his doubt is seen as affirmation, not failure. He's not named in Luke's account but we can sense them in the background. So now they're all sitting in this room. A great debate's going on. Well, they're still talking about this, and I'm sure they're talking, and passionately, Jesus. Jesus himself stood among them and said, hey, what's up, everybody? <laughs> Peace be with you. Suddenly, Jesus. He's there. Now, can you imagine? Just pause for a moment. You're sitting in the room, and the guy that you followed... The guy you gave up your job for, the guy that taught like no other, the guy that cast out demons with a word, the teacher who, with a look or with a touch, healed people, actually brought some people back from the dead, the rabbi that thousands, then hundreds of thousands listened to, the one that they had laughed with and ate with, they had actually come and dangerously confessed as the Messiah, and then the one they had run away from the one some of them had denied, the one that had been tortured, the one that had been tortured in the most inhumane of ways, the one who had been executed by the act of crucifixion, the one that they had hoped everything in and now had lost all hope in, never expecting to see him ever again until the resurrection is standing physically, like standing physically with them, just like the old days. And before they can scream or yell or run or hide, before anything, Jesus says what God and angels always say, when reality happens, when heaven touches earth. He says, peace be with you. Just breathe, everyone. It's me. It's going to be okay. We talked about this. Guys, why are you freaking out so much? Do not fear. It's interesting when Jesus says, peace be with you. If you read the gospel account of Luke, Luke always ties the word peace to salvation all through his book. It's the word shalom, wholeness. And what is taking place here is not just a greeting or a what's up or no, no, it's deeper than this. See, at this moment, this moment that would ripple throughout history, I mean, we're sitting in Ajax today because of this moment. We know that this small group of people are now at the crossroads of faith. What would mark them the rest of their lives? Trepidation, panic, loss of hope, jadedness, outright skepticism, or shalom, peace. What would they embrace? What would mark them? Well, the Bible doesn't lie. It's why I love it. It does not make things glossy or okay. It doesn't make things easy. It honestly wades into the fragility of our lives, into the struggle that we all have. And the crowd reacts, well, I think the way we all would. It says they were startled. You're telling me they were. And frightened. Yeah, I bet you they peed their pants a little bit. Yes. Thinking they saw a what? Ghost. Fear, anxiety, terrified panic. Now, I think what they did is what we would try doing. All of us would try to compensate, trying to go to a logical place in a space that seemed to have no logic in it anymore. They say, well, it's got to be an apparition, or it's a phantom, or it's an angel, or it's a demon, it's a ghost, it's exhaustion, it's sleep deprivation, it's bad food, it's hallucinate. No, no, it's not a ghost. 
This is not some ethereal event. Jesus is now redefining every single Jewish understanding of resurrection, and he is about to violate and break every view of the afterlife held in the Hellenistic world in that time. Now, later, others would say, well, Jesus only appeared to have a raised body, but he was just a spirit. No, no. Jesus was physically raised from the dead. The purpose here is to assert the reality of Jesus's personal presence. The resurrection is not just an event. It's a person, a dead man walking for real. He said to them again, why are you troubled? Why are doubts rising in your mind? Why are you freaking out? I talked to you about this for three whole years. I told you this was going to happen. I love this. Jesus isn't just seeing their body language. He, because he is who he is, is looking into their soul and he knows he can literally read their thoughts in their conscious mind. And Jesus says, it's okay. It's okay you're doubting. It's all good. I know we've done some crazy things over the last three plus years together, but this probably tops it off. So let me help you. Uh, Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's, it's me. It's I myself. You touch me. Come here, Matthew. Come here. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Can you imagine it? Matthew going, oh, I'm so afraid. Oh. In that moment, Jesus starts saying, no, no, I'm the same person you used to know, and I'm raised from the dead. Yes, my hands and feet have the marks of execution, but all the other grotesque marks that riddled my body are gone. I have chosen to let these stay because I want you to know I have power over death and power over sin and power over the demonic. These marks that used to be signs of death are now victory signs of life. He chooses this. He says, each one of you, come over and look at me. You touch me. We, you come have a conversation with me. Can you imagine as they look into the eyes of Jesus, the one whose eyes literally drained of life three days earlier, now full of vibrant heaven-given life? And then at this moment, we get to the most important verse, probably for the whole series. And it says, and well, they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, He asked them, anyone got anything to eat? (laughs) Now, this is brilliant. When I first discovered this, when I was preaching this in 2009, I was struck by this passage. They did not believe because of joy. They did not believe because of amazement. I never thought that there could be a dark side of joy. But see, joy here is almost sinister. That it's this, this has to be too good to be true. I mean, I I literally know this is happening, that Jesus is in front of me. I cannot commit myself to reality itself because, well, just because I'm, maybe I'm too excited or so joyful, I need to stop myself. I can't embrace this. This emotional encounter stuff needs to be shut down. I just need, I need to get a hold of myself. How interesting and how true that joy, authentic knowing, experience can become the ground of no faith because of being jaded and over-analytical and over-controlling, which is always, by the way, rooted in pride or fear. They could not even trust their own senses. How true of many of us who gather here week in and week out, of you visiting with us today or maybe you online. But here's the point. Fact and experience brings us to the precipice of encounter, but that seems not even to be enough in our condition 
See, we need divine help to get it. So Jesus says, I know you're struggling, so I've been dead for three days. I'm actually really hungry. Does anyone have any food? Can you imagine the disciples, the ladies all looking at each other like, is this really happening? And someone walks over the table and maybe they grab something. We find out later it's a piece of broiled fish. And so they give it to Jesus. Can you imagine the guy passing it to him, terrified? Jesus is like, yeah, thanks, that's great. And he eats it. And I imagine the disciples looking for it to fall on the ground. And it doesn't. What, what Jesus is declaring is that he's there. Can you imagine the conversation? It didn't fall. He's eating. He's like, guys, I can hear you. I know, I'm hungry. See, this deals with three wrong ideas that are floating out there and have been there for centuries. Jesus is not resuscitated. This is physical resurrection. Jesus is not a cadaver that some other spirit has taken over. This isn't the walking dead. This is not zombification. Resurrection is not the soul being freed from the body. Jesus is the same guy physically raised from the dead, and he is by just being there and allowing them to touch him and showing them the same marks and eating food. He's just saying by word and deed, everyone, it is really me. And then he said, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the Old Testament. And then he, notice the phrase, opened their minds so they could understand God's word. He told them this was written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. See, unlike what so many people think, Many scholars who even acknowledge the reality of the historical Jesus. Jesus' death was not a mistake. Jesus' death was not a political act only. Jesus is not just another religious leader in a day who gets knocked off because the religious leaders don't like him. Jesus' death is not just another leader being taken out by the Romans who threaten Roman peace. Jesus is not just another political social revolutionary who stood up to the man and paid with his life. These factors are true. They're real. They make up part of the mosaic. But as we've learned week in and week out, it is heaven's view which is most significant. It is from heaven's view that we get the vantage point that all the other things are put in the rightful place. The chaos of Good Friday was being used to accomplish the sovereign will of God the Father expressed through Jesus the Son, revealed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, one God, true living God, the only God, he loved us so much, he came for us when we We could not get to him. It's why this famous verse is so true. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on Jesus will not die but have eternal life. God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Why did Jesus suffer And why does it matter that Jesus physically rose from the dead? Because it's actually what he was accomplishing that is a gift to us. Maybe you've been with us for the last two weeks, virtually or here online, here or online. And after looking at the facts, you might say with a high level of certainty, yes. Maybe I didn't have all this right. Yeah, I could maybe say this is historically true. But knowing that that's historically true is never enough. See, the good news is that we don't just get facts. We move from fact to encounter. 
And the good news is that the work of Jesus, not just the resurrection of Jesus, the work of Jesus that he was accomplishing on the cross now isn't just for Jewish people. It's for all people, all family, all ethnic groups. Anyone who wants to know God can now know him. But notice what Jesus says. Right on Easter morning, right in the original gathering, this is the real original gathering of the church. He said, to actually know me and to actually have all that I have to give you, to come to the resurrected one, you must come with repentance. This is the only appropriate response to God's offer of salvation. Repentance means a realignment of your life. It's a 180. You're walking that direction, now you're going in this direction. And let's, let's have an honest moment this morning on this Easter. This is a declaration that you choose to trust Jesus alone for everything. Multiple, multiple people here within the sound of my voice, you trust in you. Your life is about you and you are the master of your destiny. You don't trust in him. Or you trust in science, or you trust in education, or your degrees, or you're deeply religious, continually trying to impress God by everything you do. Maybe you're an atheist, birthed by thought or by pain, or an agnostic, or you call yourself spiritual, or you worship another God of another faith, or you have the title Christian, but you don't really follow him. Here's the great gift and call of Easter this morning. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Admit that your trust, your whole life, has been in the wrong direction. And turn to Jesus who has actually conquered death and is full of love and joy and say, I trust you and not me anymore. And what is the result of doing that act, of moving from informed to informed encounter to trust? Jesus says that we get something that the world desperately sings about all the time but does not believe is possible. We get the forgiveness of sins. Everything you've ever done against yourself, every time you looked in that mirror, and all that stuff you've said, all the stuff you've done against others, families, friends, coworkers, all the stuff you've thought publicly, privately, everything you've done against God will never be used against you again. Why? Because Jesus just didn't die and physically rise from the dead and conquer death. He actually took the punishment we deserve for all of those things and put it on his body so we get a clean slate. I started by asking two weeks ago this question, and now let me say it in reverse. Since Jesus rose from the dead, atheism is answered. Since Jesus rose from the dead, we now know we don't live in a closed universe where we're just stardust and there's nothing else. Since Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism is now resolved. Since Jesus rose from the dead, every religion and every philosophy must now reevaluate itself at its core. Since Jesus rose from the dead, death is answered and we actually with confidence know what lies beyond the grave because someone went there and has come back and has told us that it does not own us in the end. Since Jesus rose from the dead, the human family does not now need to ask anymore who God is, what he is like, or if he's involved because in the face of Christ, we know that we find God because Jesus is God. Since Jesus rose from the dead, there now is a great gift called purpose in our life that is more than accumulation, money, sexual experience, power, or being religious. And since Jesus rose from the dead, the coffin that we will all be put in that we don't like thinking about, or the cremation fire that will lick our skin, will not be our end and will not have the final say. Jesus, in this moment, 
in the resurrection undoes everything that has haunted the human family and now declares authoritatively that death is not the end, forgiveness of sins is possible, humanity can know God again, and we can have purpose in this life. And as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so those who trust in Jesus also will be physically raised from the dead, and we will have eternal life through Him. That is the heart of the gospel of Jesus. And to you that are seekers this morning, or to you two who are struggling Christians, let me remind you, in this moment, because this is a holy moment right now, you can move from death spiritually to life. Suffering can be reinterpreted through joy. Bondage can give way to freedom. Suffering can be, again, given, through Christ, given and reinterpreted through Christ. Loneliness is permanently replaced by relationship that can never be taken away. And in a world, think about it, that offers everything but peace and love, Jesus offers us peace and love. It was the pastor Tim Keller in New York who said, and I love this simple phrase, he says, religion teaches you that you earn your life, Secular society says you create your own life, and Jesus says, no, no, it's my life for your life. That's the gospel, and that's the implication of Easter. Over two weeks, we have had all the facts laid out before us, but now I want to take a moment to give opportunity to move all of you, to you online, to you in the north, to you sitting in front of a computer screen, to move from informed to informed trust. This is a holy moment where I'm giving you opportunity on Easter to say yes to him. To you that have for the last two weeks been saying this is nonsense or you're afraid or you're disturbed by Jesus or you mistrust those around you, Christians, so you mistrust the message. To you that are frightened or troubled or full of doubt about Jesus. To many of us that actually know the historical truths of Jesus and maybe even experienced him in part, but you will not let yourself go there to you that some of you will not even trust your own experience with Jesus, right now, in this moment, right now, he is present. And this is what he's saying to you. Peace be with you. I did suffer. I did. And I did rise from the dead. And I am who I claim to be. And so I'm inviting you as your creator and Savior and Lord, I'm inviting you, O skeptic and O seeker and wanderer and wanderer, come now and repent. Do the 180. Let me give you forgiveness. I mean, this is actually why I died and why I rose from the dead, so I could know you again and you could know me again. I love you. He's come for you at this moment, bringing history to life, speaking to you about life and death and sin so you can be free. He's confronting you and inviting you and wooing you so you can have joy that goes beyond circumstance. And let me just say this this morning. Jesus has enough power to fashion thrones from cynical hearts. So many of us sitting here today once were rebels against Jesus, or hated the Christian faith, or thought it was all lunacy, or we actually were moral and good and religious and thought that was enough. And if you had the time to hear the hundreds, well, the thousands of stories in this church, we would tell you not one of us here in this church are here because of what we've done. We are here because Jesus invited us, and we found love and forgiveness, and he made us his children. So here's my pleading with you this morning. Say yes to Jesus like the first people did. For if you do, then Jesus' work 
is applied to you. Sin doesn't define you. Death will not own you. Satan will not hold you. And life and worship and joy and hope can mark you. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pretty. Not everything in life is okay when you become a Christian. But here's what we can say. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead will be in you. You'll never be alone. And joy and faith and hope and love will have more power than anything you face. That is true. No, it's it's true of us. So here's my invitation. Trust in him. Repent. Turn. Receive. Confess. Ask him, literally, in your heart right now, if you're one of those people, Jesus, you've got to open my mind so I can believe. Saul of Tarsus, who was at the present, was present at the first murder of the first Christian, who was hunting Christians down and throwing them in jails, who suddenly met the risen Jesus Christ and became one of his greatest followers, articulated how you move from blind leaping to inform, to inform trust. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, oh, you'll be saved for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So is that you this morning? Is that you? So let's just do this. Let's all bow our heads all across our sites, wherever you are, heads bowed up in the balcony too. And I want to ask you very directly, is this you? It is no mistake God has brought you to this church on this day. And are you ready to receive Jesus Christ and say, I not only now know historically this is true, but I believe he's alive and he died for me. If there's anyone, would you raise your hand and I want to lead you in a prayer to do this together. So if this is you, let's just pray together. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and you rose from the dead and I'm done running my own life. I ask you now to come run it and be the Lord of my life. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I'm going to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you are who you claimed. I believe it. And I believe you rose from the dead. And I want that hope those women had and those original disciples had. So come and be my Savior in the name of Jesus. We all said, amen. And so why don't we stand as we prepare to respond And as Christians, I just want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, these words. At this moment, I want you just to catch this because this is an amazing moment. We are joining the global church. Hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions are gathering right now to celebrate that Jesus is alive. And so I just want to declare before heaven and hell and everyone else that Jesus was a real person rooted in history but Jesus was not just a person. He is God in flesh. Yes, Jesus suffered. We confess that. And Jesus has been raised from the dead. And in his name, we again in this church as Christians affirm that we are free because we've repented. We've experienced the forgiveness of sins. And we declare with certainty that as Jesus rose from the dead, we also will be rose from the de- risen from the dead. And I end with this. 1 Corinthians 15 Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin of the law. But what can we say together? But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. 
Let's sing back to him joyfully because he's alive among us. Let's sing to him now. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.